Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 46, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. I'm author of a book released earlier this year called The God Who Fights For You, which focuses on uh, one of the last conversations Jesus had with Peter when he informs him that he's going to be sifted like wheat by Satan. So the whole book is about where is Jesus in our pain, and there's a surprising answer to that in that book. And the year before that, uh, I wrote the book Spiritual Grit, and we created two companion devotions that go with that book, one for adults, one for teenagers. So that's uh, something to think about as Christmas is approaching. But And uh, a couple years before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, on which this podcast is based, and I'm the editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. And here's a little uh, news alert. I just, in the last 24 hours, finished more than a year's work and probably seven, 800 hours of investment into the Jesus Center Daily, a new daily devotional that will come out at the end of summer next year, but I just finished and sent that off to, uh, to kind of enter the funnel of our editorial process now. So the Jesus Center Daily, that'll be coming um, next August, the end of, end of summer. So we'll be talking more about that as we move into next year. So right now, we're headed into gift-giving season, as we all know, and I wanted to remind you that we put together a great menu of some Jesus-centered treasures, uh, little resources that will make, you know, just fantastic gifts for family members and friends this Christmas. I've already mentioned the Jesus-centered Bible, but also the Jesus-centered Planner, which is quickly selling out. Um, and we have the Jesus-centered devotion called Centering Your Life on Jesus, and this little little devotion for teenagers called the Jesus-centered Life, 40 Devotions for Teenagers, which um, it, it is a great little devotion for teenagers. I, I created it with two friends of mine, and the art and the graphics in this are incredible, um, but, uh, created by my friend Jeff Storm. Um, but it's not just a devotion for teenagers. I know it has it in the title, but it's a great little devotion for anybody, if you're interested in uh, a, a very creative approach to a daily devotional, or, or to a, a, I think it has just 40 devotions in it. We also have some uh, some coloring books. If you want to, if you have someone in your life who's more arti- has an artistic bent, uh, we also have as part of that sort of suite of Jesus-centered things, some very creative coloring books that that en- end up helping you to focus on Jesus as you're um, as you're coloring them, and, and it's a great stress reliever also. So today is the 13th episode in this series we're doing called The Beeline Practices, which are, uh, you know, the last part of the Jesus-centered life is all filled with 18 or 19 of these beeline practices, which are essentially uh, ways to live our life that draws closer to Jesus um, in in lots of different trajectories, in lots of different creative ways. It's not a to-do list, it's just a, a menu of opportunity, and and we are uh, diving deep into each one of those beeline practices um, into December. So, so uh, in this episode, we're going to explore the beeline practice of scaring yourself for good. <laughs> Sounds kind of funny. A lot of these beeline practices, I don't know why I named them the way I did. They all sound kind of funny when I, when I say it. But this one's called scaring yourself for good. And here's a, 
sort of a funny, reverse-engineered way to think about this. In the Bible, whenever people have a direct experience of God or the supernatural, like angels, for instance, fear is always the immediate reaction. It's, it's just a common theme throughout Scripture when people are actually in the presence of God or in, a, in the presence of a supernatural being. Fear is their first response. So you could say that fear—this this is the funny part—fear is a primary indicator of God's closeness in our life. Yeah, that's not so much what we want, though. <laughs> but fear is actually a sign that Jesus is in the house. And there's something good that can come out of this, so hang with me here, even though it sounds weird at the start. It, right, it sounds wrong, but just hang with me just for a second. So let's go back to the beeline practice of what does scaring yourself for good mean? Well, it means that we invite the close presence of Jesus into our life by risking in our relationship with him. And risk always produces a kind of fear. Danger produces fear in us. So scaring yourself for good means in our relationship with Jesus, we take more risks, which produces more danger, which in turn, the fruit of that is fear. So when we risk, what happens when we do that? We push ourselves outside of not just our comfort zone, but really our safety zone. That's what happens when we push our boundaries. So we live in the most affluent society in the history of the world right now. And that affluence, I've mentioned this on previous podcasts, has some sneaky side effects. One that I've mentioned in the past is that one uh, uh, connected fruit of our affluence is that we have the highest suicide rate in the world. And there are some interesting reasons why that is, why there's a connection there. Part of that is when you have gained everything you're supposed to gain to give you happiness, and it doesn't give you happiness, uh, to quote Jesus, how deep is your darkness then? That's part of it. But there's other sneaky side effects of our affluence, including a deep fear of losing what we have. You know, So if, if you don't have anything to lose, then you don't fear losing it, right? But if you have lots to lose, then fear can dominate your life, and safety can be the most dominant message or the most dominant value in your life. So this is what happened with Jesus and the rich young ruler, by the way. Um, the rich young ruler was all gung-ho about Jesus until Jesus said, why don't you sell everything you have and, and follow me? And the reason for his not accepting that offer and turning around and leaving, uh, it says in Scripture, is that this man had a lot to lose, and that's why he couldn't give it up in the moment. So the same is true with us in an affluent society. We have a lot to lose, and uh, therefore we fear losing it. So our life is dominated by safety messages. You could say that, and I think in our culture, safety is our God. It's a false God because the real God, Jesus, is calling us into danger. There's plenty of examples of him doing this. Uh, the first time he sends out his disciples, without him for the just two by two, we've already talked in previous podcasts about the daunting job description he gives them, you know, cast out demons, heal people of incurable illnesses, tell them about the gospel, um, things that would be daunting no matter what, and then he takes away all of their typical resources uh, to take the edge off of their tough job description. Can't take any money with you, no change of clothes, don't arrange ahead of time where you're going to stay. So here Jesus is purposefully introducing risk and therefore fear into his assignment to them. Why? Why would he do this? Um, there is a method behind his madness, I have to say. There, 
that he is not valuing safety above all else when he does these things. You can also see in almost every example of his healing or casting out of demons that the person he's interacting with, he asks them to do something that takes some kind of risk. I wrote a whole book about this, by the way, called Skin in the Game, which focused just on the way Jesus asked people that he interacted with to put their skin in the game, to put something at risk on the line, which again produces fear. It's Jesus, you could say, is anti-safety. He's calling people to move out of their comfort zone and out of their safety zone to do what he's asking us to do. So translated, it means simply that we take risks when we serve others, and when the Spirit of Jesus nudges us to do that. So volunteering, the the example is like volunteering to lead something that you'd normally not lead, or serving in a daunting setting that where you don't have your bearings. It could be in in a culture where you don't speak the same language and don't understand the culture at all. Or another example is entering into the stories of people whose problems are beyond your ability to solve. And we typically shy away from entering into people's stories whose problems are so big we know that we can't really do anything about them, so we don't enter in. And the reason we don't enter in is because we feel overwhelmed and afraid that we won't have what it takes to enter into that story. Or even fighting the influence of demonic influence in other people's lives. Most of us don't do that on a daily basis, but for Jesus it was a regular, normal, everyday reality, fighting demonic influence in people's lives. Or even more every day, simply loving people with a vulnerability that puts you at risk, where you risk vulnerability on a deeper level, and we all know what happens sometimes when you do that is you get horribly hurt when you do that. So taking risks as the Spirit of Jesus nudges us can look like all of those things. So, and scaring ourselves by taking risks in our relationship with Jesus really does run counter to our natural fear of danger. So all human beings are wired to fear danger, to respond to danger, or to a force that's uh, bigger than their own control, which explains why fear is the common response to the presence of God or the presence of the supernatural. It's something beyond us that we can't control, so that naturally produces fear in us. So when we scare ourselves by taking risks, it goes counter to our culture's sort of drumbeat regarding safety. A couple of quick stories from my own life about this. Probably it must be um, when I think of, of a kind of viscerally of a time, a season in my life where I was scaring myself for good, is we had a, a close friend who had, we had developed a relationship over several years, my wife and I, and she was very much involved in our life at the time, but uh, more and more she started sharing stories of the abusive behavior of her husband and was coming to us almost on a daily basis asking us what she should do and should she leave and, and should she get out of this relationship. And and this was all new for us. It, it's not like we were trained to intervene in a situation like this, but we knew for the sake of love and for our friend that we had to enter in somehow. So we tried to navigate as best we could. And at one point, when things seemed to be getting more and more intense, and she was asking us more and more what she should do, one day she just showed up at her house, unexpected, and she had a box of things, and she said, here are some things that I just want you guys to have. And there were some personal items she just wanted us to have. Well, my radar went up, and I looked at her, and I said, you know, this this seems a little odd to me that you're giving us these things to have. Have you been thinking about suicide? And her eyes started to well with tears, and she nodded her head. 
And then I asked her, do you have a specific plan for what you are intending to do? And she kind of nodded her head just ever so slightly again. And then I said, okay, I think we need to get you some help right now. We're going to take you to the hospital now so that you can get some help. And I subtly took away her cell phone when I told her this, because I knew that reflexively she would call her abusive husband and tell him what we were doing. And I couldn't afford for her to do that. So I told her once we got in the car that I had taken her cell phone. And the state that she was in, she just acquiesced to it. We got her to the emergency room, and as soon as we got her checked in, we knew that her husband could not stop her from being admitted then. So we gave her her cell phone back, and she immediately texted him. And her abusive husband came down to the emergency room, sat across the waiting room from us, and glowered at us the whole time. He was a violent man. He was a dangerous man. And now we were in this story. And the story played out in a heartbreaking way. Um, Our friend was admitted. She was in the hospital or treatment center for two or three months. It was a significant disruption of their life. They had a small child at the time, and the husband was furious. And we tried to maintain contact with her, in fact, went to her house once uh, when she had been, after she'd been released. We did try to visit her and had to kind of figure out how to do that around when her husband was going to be there. And we tried to visit her at home once she had come home, but he greeted us at the door and said he was going to beat me up. He's going to drag me out in the street and beat me up. So I had to stand and face him in the midst of that. Um, and very often my wife and I would look at each other and say, you know, we're in over our heads. And we were. But what happens when Jesus calls you to be in over your head? What happens then? Well, what we know, what I know that happened over that period of time was we, by necessity, grew very close to Jesus. We needed his help on a daily basis to know what to do. We needed the guidance of his Spirit in the moment to know uh, what to do and not to do, how to handle ourselves, how to not take personally some of the stuff that was being thrown at us, because our intention was to help rescue a woman who was in dire need. The end of that story, the heartbreaking part of it, is that once she came home permanently, all of our contact was cut off with her, and we have occasionally seen her by accident. Um, When she's been alone, she's tried to say something to us in a cautious way, but when she's with her husband, she obviously doesn't say a word and avoids us, so we don't know what her future's going to be. So was that a wasted, uh, what we did? I don't think so. I think when you get involved in someone's story, it's going to be a mess, and all you can do is follow the Spirit of Jesus can't force someone into health or rescue. You can only invite it. And that's what it means to live scaring yourself for good. It means that you value the mission you have from Jesus, setting captives free, more than your safety. And I know that sounds strange and counter in this culture, but that's what it means. It is a scary experience to do this, but in the midst of that experience, we feel alive because we are doing what we were created to do, which is to be in close, intimate contact with Jesus, uh, because it's a necessity. So in, in sort of a pragmatic way, a dependent relationship with Jesus simply means scaring ourselves in a good way. So to join Jesus in his family business, which is to set captives free, uh, we have to prefer boldness and adventure over safety in our life. Now, those aren't my words. 
That's from Edwin Friedman, who I have such respect for. He was a, a rabbi, a business consultant, a sociologist, and a counselor whose life's work was poured into a book called The Failure of Nerve, and it's a brilliant, upending book that he actually died right before he was able to finish it, and his family finished it for him and then published it with a small publisher on the East Coast, and it became a massive hit. So A Failure of Nerve, you've heard me probably mention this, this book on the podcast before, or Edwin Friedman, but his, his premise is that as people, we have capitulated to ways of relating to each other that don't add up to love, don't add up to transformative influence, don't add up to the way Jesus related to people, which was to plant seeds of redemption in their life and to help them move out of darkness into light. Edwin Friedman's premise is that we've adopted life patterns that serve to keep people stuck in unhealthy patterns in our life, and that that's not the definition of love. So I think that though Friedman is not a follower of Jesus, he was following Jesus's prime directive when he offered this contrast, saying that our life is really about preferring boldness and adventure over safety. So think about this, what Jesus said. This is what I would call Jesus's prime directive. It's from Matthew 16, 25. He says, "'For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.'" If you lose your life, you'll find it. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. Another way of saying it is, if you live with safety as your God, you're going to lose your life. But if you live with my will as your life, with my mission, with our, the mission of our family business to set captives free as the focus of your life, then you're going to find your life when you do that. A rich life is always driven by something that's worth dying for. Let me say that again. A rich life is always driven by something that's worth dying for. So to live in this way, according to Edmund Friedman, he emphasizes three things, and we're just going to touch on these three and connect them to how Jesus lived these things out. The first one, well, let me just tell you the three things first, and then we'll go back and tackle them one by one. So he says, we emphasize in our life maturity over more data. That's number one. The second thing is we emphasize stamina over new techniques. And then the third one is we emphasize personal responsibility over empathy. Now, those are hard to even understand when I just list them that way. That's where we're going to dive into them now. So the first one he listed is emphasizing maturity over more data. Let's take a look at a story here that I think will help to flesh this out, maturity over more data. It's, this is the story of the disciples asking Jesus to feed the hungry crowds and what Jesus tells them instead. So this is in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. As soon as Jesus heard the news, and the news here was that John the Baptist had been executed, he'd been beheaded. So as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Well, that evening the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said, well, that isn't necessary. You feed them. But we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Well, bring them here, he said. And then he told the people to sit down on the grass. And Jesus took the five loaves and two fish and looked up toward heaven and blessed them. And then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted. 
and afterward the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. What an extraordinary story, but embedded in there is this little moment where the disciples say, hey, Jesus, you've got to send these people away. It's getting late. They're, they're going to be hungry. And he says, that's not necessary. You feed them. Now, slow down and think about that for a second. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Jesus is telling you, you feed what amounts to probably 12, 15,000 people on that hillside. You feed them. Immediately, they're thinking, we, are, we don't have the capacity to do that. What you just asked us to do is overwhelming. We need more help. We need more strength. We need more, uh, more of something, because we can't do this. And in that moment, it's, I know this is a funny way of translating what's happening there, but in that moment, there's a demand for more information and more, more of something before we will move. And that really is our safety mechanism. This is what Jesus is trying to surface in them. It's not just impractical, it's that we default to our own safety mechanism and say, um, well, we're going to need more of something before we're able to do that. So it's kind of like what I've always loved about the ethic of youth with a mission. I was connected with YWAM early on when I was a young man involved in missionary work, and I really respected what the innovation that YWAM brought into the world of missionary work. Their uh, mindset was that there are lots of people to reach in the world, and they're not getting reached because people believe that you have to go to school for several years and specialize to become a missionary. And their idea was, let's create a discipleship training school that will last a month um, that's focused for young people, and then after that month of training, let's have them spend two or three months on outreach, living out that training, reaching people around the world. And they revolutionized the way missionary work came to be. And what they were really saying is, because we demand more training and data and experience, many, many people are not hearing uh, the good news that Jesus loves them, so let's wipe some of that out. Let's give essential training, and then let's get them out on the field as soon as possible with help and support along the way. So it was a tremendous risk, but it changed the game in the world. There, there are so many fruits from the work of Youth with a Mission in the world because it, re it released young people into um, influencing people around the world for Jesus when that never would have happened had we maintained our more data, more study, more training mentality. The bottom line is if you wait until you feel confident about it, whatever it is, you'll likely never do it. That, that idea that I have to feel fully prepared for something before I'll do it is, is a way of keeping you on the sidelines, and it can keep you on the sidelines your entire life. So what Friedman is saying is we value maturity over more data, meaning we bring our mature self into those situations even if we feel overwhelmed by the task. We trust Jesus to help us express and offer what we have to give out of our own maturity rather than using the excuse that we're not ready yet. So that's, that's Friedman's first way to live your life, scaring yourself for good. The second way is emphasizing stamina over new techniques. Stamina over new techniques. So we're always looking uh, things for in our culture, we're always looking for things that will take away the hard and replace it with the easy, right? Uh, so many aspects of our life, of our affluent life, are about 
finding things that will offload hard from us and replace it with easy. That's, of course, human nature. Um, our technology allows us to do that, but throughout all of time, humankind has looked for ways to remove hard and replace it with easy. But when we invest our hope in easy formulas instead of the sort of messy reality of our stamina, we are disinviting intimacy in our relationship with Jesus. Let me say that again. If we gravitate to formulas and recipes, do this, uh, not that, kinds of things in our relationship with Jesus, where we're really relating to the formulas and recipes, not really to Jesus, then we are disinviting intimacy in that relationship. We're using a technique to replace what is the wellspring of stamina in our life, which is our relationship with Jesus. So let's read a second story here from Mark chapter 9. Let me just flip over here in my Jesus-centered Bible to Mark chapter 9. We're going to read the story of the disciples unable to cast out a demon from a young boy. So this starts in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with, with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What's all this arguing about? Jesus asked. Well, one of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever his spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. And then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. Well, he replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire, into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. And the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and then left him. So, pretty epic story here about uh, Jesus trying to parse why his disciples couldn't get this demon out. But think about this just for a second. When Jesus says later on, when his disciples are asking him, why couldn't we get this demon out of him? If we flip a bit later into Mark 9, when his disciples after the fact say, why, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus' reply is, this kind can be cast out only through prayer. It's interesting. So if you think about this for, for a second, the dichotomy going on here, the disciples were likely using a sort of a recipe or formula for how to cast out a demon a way that they thought worked like uh, a Harry Potter wand, and it didn't work. And so when they come to Jesus and say, why didn't our recipe work? Jesus is saying, well, this kind comes out through prayer, stamina. It means that you enter into partnership with God, and through prayer, figure out how to assert authority over this demon. You don't use a recipe or formula, you access your relationship which is what prayer is. You access your relationship with God, and then you lean into the stamina that comes from that. This, our stamina comes from 
being guided by God in what we do. The formula is like, you know, a vending machine. We just put in the right coins, and we expect to get what we've ordered out of the vending machine. And Jesus is saying the vending machine doesn't work in situations like this. What does work is your relationship, and that relationship requires stamina. That's what prayer means, that you enter into conversational relationship with God and then move on the basis of that. You speak and move on the basis of that, not on the basis of the of the formula or recipe. So that's emphasizing stamina over new techniques. And then the last thing that Friedman says is we emphasize personal responsibility over empathy. Personal responsibility over empathy. So hang with me for just here for a second. Empathy is also kind of a god in our culture. We lift it up as maybe the highest value we have, character value that we have. And of course, I'm not saying that uh, living close to Jesus doesn't mean that we also live uh, compassionately, because Jesus lived compassionately. But empathy comes alongside a person to validate their feelings. Jesus pursues people for the purpose of their redemption. Those are two very different things. Jesus is intent on setting us free, and empathy sometimes keeps us in our prison. When he pursues us for the purpose of redemption, he wants what will bring us joy, and that means he takes personal responsibility for moving us toward that. So Friedman is saying we emphasize personal responsibility over empathy. That personal responsibility is the same thing that uh, I was describing in our entry into our friend's darkness. Instead of hoping things would just turn out okay, or simply only empathizing with her situation and validating her feelings, we got involved in her story. We took responsibility for helping our friend find rescue. That's the difference. So a little funny story about how this works that I put into the Jesus-centered life. It's just such a clear story to me. Uh, we have a dog, a Bajan Frise, named Chloe. She's a little white rug ball. Uh, uh, she's about three inches off the ground. Um, she's pretty feisty. She still thinks she's a puppy, even though she's eight or nine years old now. Well, a few years ago, uh, my youngest daughter wanted to get a hamster, and um, she did. She got this cute little hamster named Pippin. And uh, when Pippin entered our home, our Bajan Frise Chloe was, shall we say, fascinated with the hamster. I mean, really obsessed with the hamster. And my wife, Bev, thought that what Chloe wanted to do was just meet the hamster, that if she, if she put the hamster in her hands and lowered the hamster low enough for our dog to meet um, the hamster, that this would, be, this would fulfill what our dog wanted. And I said, no, the dog wants to bite the hamster's head off. Um, that's not what Chloe wants. She does not want to socialize with the hamster. She wants to eat the hamster. Well, my wife uh, is a very empathetic person, and she kept seeing Chloe gravitate to this hamster. And so when I wasn't there, she took the hamster in her hands, and she lowered the hamster so that Chloe could sniff her, and then Chloe promptly tried to bite the head off the hamster. So the hamster barely escaped with her life, and, and Bev was shocked to discover uh, that Chloe actually is a carnivore <laughs> and is would have killed that hamster had she got her, her teeth around it. So in this story, empathy, we all understand the empathy of this story, but empathy could have killed the hamster. And so empathy is not always our, our highest and best good. It's not always a loving thing to do for, the, for that person. So let's look at one last story here as we close off. This is from John chapter 8. 
Um, this is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Um, I've talked about it, um, I'm sure, many times before on the podcast. This is the story of uh, a man that Jesus sees on the on the side of the road in Jerusalem who is blind from birth. And this man uh, is by the side of the road because, like all of those who were handicapped or in some way a special needs, quote-unquote, person back then, they had to depend upon begging by the side of the road to live. And so Jesus sees this man by the side of the road, and he calls him over, and he is going to offer this man the generous gift of his sight back. But the way that he does it is he spits into the dirt first and makes some mud from the dirt in his spit, and then he smears it over the man's eyes, and then he tells the man to go to the Pool of Siloam, which is outside the, the boundaries of Jerusalem, and wash there, and his sight will come back. And so if Jesus was simply interested in empathy, he would have stopped, talked to the man, tried to enter into his story, enter, in, enter into his shoes, understand what it's like to live um, as a blind person from birth in a society like that, try to understand his feelings more deeply, but instead he doesn't do that. Instead, he asks the man to do something that seems hard, a blind man with spit mud on his face, finding his own way through town to the outskirts of town to wash in the Pool of Siloam. And what is he doing here? He's restoring, I think, the man's dignity. And on the other side of this, uh, there's a skeptical public that doesn't believe that this is the same man they've seen their whole life who's been blind by the side of the road. He looks different now as anyone who was blind and is no longer blind. Their eyes look remarkably different, and so this man looked different. So the religious leaders in particular didn't believe he was the same man by the side of the road. So it's a long story of him having to defend himself and defend what Jesus has done. And this man who's lived in the margins, uh, this man who's lived uh, with abuse heaped upon him and ignored by uh, regular society his whole life, and no voice in that society, he is standing before the most powerful people in his culture, defending himself and defending Jesus. So part of what Jesus has done here by asking him to find his own way to the Pool of Siloam is that this man gets to participate in his own rescue. He, he is reclaiming himself as he finds his way to Siloam. He is reclaiming his dignity, and this is what Jesus is after. And this is why he often will, uh, instead of offering empathy, he'll ask for personal responsibility to be invested in our own rescue. He wants us to reclaim the dignity of our agency in our life. So he will do it as a partner. So empathy leads us to ask, well, how can I occupy this person's emotional space? But personal responsibility, on the other hand, leads us to ask, what do I have to give here? That's the central question of personal responsibility. What do I have to give here? How can I help affect change here? How can I plant seeds of redemption? So let's close off with one of my favorite stories from The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I read these books when I was a kid and then loved the films when they came out. And there's a, st a particular story that's about two-thirds of the way through the whole epic arc of the story that I just love. It's, it's when Aragorn, who is the um, sort of the unclaimed king uh, of the army of the good in this epic story of good versus evil, Aragorn is a king who refuses to operate as a king, refuses to sit on the throne of a king because his relatives in the past were cowards and betrayers, and he has adopted that identity himself. So even though he's the rightful king 
and a brave and fearless warrior, he will not prop himself as king and lead, lead his people to victory. But he's confronted by an older, wiser, more mature leader who says, if you don't step into who you really are, we're going to lose this war. So Aragorn is really impacted by this challenge and decides for the first time that he's going to do what it takes to get involved, that he's not going to shy away from his leadership any longer. So he decides to travel alone through uh, what looks like, if you see the film, he's going to travel alone through what looks like what we would imagine, the Valley of the Shadow of Death. He's on his way to a mountain um, called the Mountain of the Dead. And in that mountain are buried a vast army. And Aragorn's been told that that vast army, will, who are now ghosts living in the mountain, will only respond to the true king. And so Aragorn decides, I'm going to go into that cave of the dead, and I'm going to confront these ghosts of this vast army, and I'm going to recruit them to help us fight against evil in the world. And he intends to do this alone because he knows he could die doing it. But his two friends, Legolas and Gimli, figure out that he's leaving, and they go with him. And they get up to the mouth of the cave that enters into this mountain of death. And uh, over, there's an inscription over the, over the entrance that says, all who enter here will die. And Aragorn looks at that inscription and then looks at his friends and says, I'm not afraid to die. And he walks into the dark cave, and then his friends reluctantly follow him. And that is such a metaphor for me of what our life is all about when we lean into scaring ourselves for good. We look at the cave, we recognize that death is waiting for us, or that darkness is waiting for us, or that that we're going to be overwhelmed by whatever's inside there, and we say, we're not afraid of it. And why aren't we afraid? Because we have a sense that we are inside our refuge, who is Jesus, and that no matter what happens, no matter what overwhelming things happen, we are inside him, and he's inside us. We carry Jesus into our overwhelming situations, and that's why we can enter into our dark caves. When we do, of course we'll be afraid, but in that fear we're driven into intimacy with Jesus, and we find a peace that passes understanding, a peace that takes the edge off of that fear. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Remember to check out the Jesus Center Planner before they're all gone, and look for all of our other Christmas gift-ready resources. You can go to group.com and look for those, or just go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You're going to looking for a season four, episode 46, and you'll see links for all of these things there. So please do travel over there. Um, this is a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll talk again next time. <laughs>